Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. With me, as always, is the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. And we are excited because it won't just be us today. We actually have an awesome guest, and I know that you have loved his ministry a lot because a lot of the ministry, not only at Good Fight Ministries, also Blessed Hope Chapel, uh, we deal with a lot of the same issues that this guy's dealing with. Joe, so how you doing today? Yeah, no, we appreciate uh, Leighton being here with us, Mr. Leighton Flowers. Uh, praise God. I mean, uh, I've been listening to some of his shows off and on through the years and have some of his written work, too, uh, which is, is great. And uh, there's very few people. I felt all alone, <laughs> uh, almost. You know, you're not Elijah, you know, and where he felt all alone. But you get that Elijah complex sometimes regarding Calvinism. Uh, from even being a new Christian. But I felt all alone, Leighton, and I realized I wasn't all alone. There were men on the front lines long before I even came around, like Wesley and others, you know. And then I still felt, man, there's not enough. There's so many Calvinists out there. There's not many warriors for, you know, the truth in, in regard to who Jesus really is and what God's heart is. And then, Leighton, praise the Lord, <laughs> your ministry came around and it has been such a blessing because you are on the front lines. And I am so grateful because I'm sure you get attacked a lot. I know you do that you've been unrelenting in this because I do believe there is a powerful movement to discredit who God is, even within the church by people that are sincere, but misled. And I praise God that mm -hmm. people can tune into your ministry and uh, hear you uh, incessantly lift up the true character and nature of our God who is love, but is also holy and just and righteous, but you have a, a very good balance. And we we're going to ask you, you know, uh, your journey because it's the, the awesome thing about your ministry too is that you've come out of Calvinism, and we're going to ask you how you know how you came out of Calvinism. But I thought, oh, I just thinking, man, let's change it up a little bit. How did? Because I don't, I want to know how you became a Calvinist, and then right. how you came out of Calvinism. Because I don't believe people open their Bibles and they read, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever whosoever believes, or he, Jesus tasted death for everyone." Or he's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, and come to the conclusion that he really doesn't love the whole world. He's really not the propitiation for the whole world. That you don't get that from the Bible. You have to be indoctrinated. And I wonder if you got that and you became a Calvinist from the Bible, or were you like so many indoctrinated? Yeah, I mean, I was introduced to the Calvinistic theology when I first was introduced to MacArthur, John MacArthur, um, there it uh, is. which was somebody that was introduced to me through, you know, a mentor there at Hardin Simmons University where I went to college. I'd grown up in a kind of a typical Southern Baptist uh, upbringing, typical Southern Baptist church, believing kind of a basic whosoever will, John 3.16 type of sociology. And quite, quite honestly, I was just ignorant of Arminianism or Calvinism or any of the isms that have to do with this uh, particular debate. And uh, reading John MacArthur, it was actually a book called Ashamed of the Gospel, which was really on pragmatism, much of which I agree with, with regard to the church becoming like the world in order to uh, you know, win people over, in order to grow big numbers. And, and MacArthur was 
uh, confronting that kind of uh, mentality that the church needs to become like the world. But then he just had a small little chapter in there on Calvinistic soteriology. And that was my first taste of it, introduction to it. I'd never seen anything like that before. And when you read passages like Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 with somebody like a Calvinist, like MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or Piper, teaching you Calvinism alongside of it when you're 19 years old, it seems very, very convincing because I had no other context to understand those passages in. And so I bought the kind of the whole system, five-point system, the tulip system, hook, line, and sinker when I was about 19 years old. Uh, and and even all the way through my my college years, as well as into my master's degree, um, I, I held to a, a very Calvinistic sociology and even went through what they called the cage stage of Calvinism, where I was trying to convince everybody that I knew to to adopt Calvinism as well. And uh, there there are many who have even been on the program, others who've been friends of mine for the, through the years that I actually you know, help win into Calvinism. Mm. Uh, and so it, it, it's kind of a journey into it. And then uh, going back out of it was a good, you know, fast forward 10 years, because I was a Calvinist for about 10 years of my life, pretty much all the way through my 20s. Wow. Um, and uh, I had been introduced to a book by A.W. Tozer, I think uh, the one on holiness. Um, uh, and he, he had said some things in that book that were not really fitting my paradigm. I thought A.W. Tozer was a Calvinist because uh, John Piper was kind of a hero of mine and, and John Piper quoted A.W. Tozer pretty regularly in his books. And so I just assumed he was one of us, so to speak, because there, there was this assumption that if you're smart and you're theological, you just have to be a Calvinist. You know, it, it just, it, it's just a natural thing for us Calvinists to think everyone else is a Calvinist if, if you are, are intelligent enough and have, have the scriptures, you know, taken them seriously, you have to be a Calvinist. And that was the kind of the mindset. And so it really rocked my world when I found out that men like A.W. Tozer and C.S. Lewis, people that I really respected, and I found out they actually had messages and books against Calvinism. Um, and that that was baffling to me that somebody wouldn't be a Calvinist. And so I, it led me kind of into at least journeying and studying and questioning why these people wouldn't be a Calvinist. And, and I'd I debated when I was in high school, and so one of the the skills that they teach you to 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 kind of take on as a debater is to be able to take the affirmative and the negative of any issue. And so I'd never really vetted the other side of the debate. I'd only really heard in my own echo chamber of Calvinism what the alternative was, mm. and it was always painted in the most caricatured, most dumbed down way. Um, and once I learned that there was actually very robust, very deep thinking scholars from the non-Calvinistic position, then it began to, to make me be really curious as to what they were teaching and why they were teaching it. And uh, over two or three years of studying the topic, I eventually began to come across questions that I couldn't answer. And oftentimes I would, I would say, well, I can't answer it because I'm just, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not the academic scholar like Sproul is, R.C. Sproul or or Piper, or these guys, they could answer these issues that were coming up in my mind as a young Calvinist. But um, the more I explored their answers and explored the answers of Reformed theology in general, the more, more disillusioned I became with the system as a whole. And I, I began to realize that the first century Jew, very was it's very unlikely that Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and these other passages were understood in that way. Uh, in the first century, especially given the first 400 years of the Christian church, as you already mentioned, didn't interpret any of those texts Calvinistically. And and once I began to see that from a, a first century corporal mindset, 
and and begin to see the the different arguments from both sides from the the best of the best scholars from both perspectives then and only then was i really able to to uh, be objective in my judgment as to which one was probably the most biblical perspective and eventually uh and very reluctantly i didn't want to leave calvinism I, I liked being a part of the the cool calvinist crowd um, and a lot, of, a lot of friends uh, that, you know, Matt Chandler and I went to school together. I helped to convince him to become a Calvinist. And mm. I liked being a part of that cool brotherhood of, of reformed folks. And, um, and so I, I didn't leave Calvinism, you know, like, oh, yay, I, I get to leave Calvinism now. I mean, I really was trying to study the doctrines so as to protect Calvinism, so as to defend Calvinism against these charges. And, um, and only reluctantly that I, I eventually abandoned the five point uh, tulip systematic and uh, and became you know what I, what I am today over time and study and end up doing my dissertation uh, for my doctorate over the topic and that led to eventually uh, many years later uh, the starting of the podcast as well. Well you know I, I think that is that's awesome to hear and one of the things I was Amen. wondering too if you could explain if there was a you know an epiphany moment or what was it that really, convinced you otherwise from the doctrine of reformed Calvinism versus what you now hold to, which uh, provisionism, um, what was it yeah, that draw you out, drew you out? I get asked that question a lot. There, there was actually probably several points in my studies that were kind of converging all on me at once. Um, but the main one that I remember the most was the issue of judicial hardening. Um, and, and a lot of people think, well, what are you talking about? That's a Calvinistic doctrine. Well, it really isn't when you think about it, because judicial hardening is the, is the act of God to, to cut somebody off or to, uh, blind them in their already rebellious condition. Uh, and so for example, they're self-hardening and the Bible, Bible talks about people who can be just become stubborn. Uh, they, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They resist the truth. And eventually, as the Bible says, God will not contend with man forever. Uh, that eventually, as Romans 1 says, uh, that if they suppress the truth, they, their hearts become defiled, they close their eyes. Eventually, he, you know, he's not obligated to keep bringing you the light, bringing you the light, bringing you the light over and over and over again. Eventually, he can take the light away from you and say, okay, I'm going to let you go your own way. I'm going to give you inheritance and let you go squander it, so to speak, uh, to use the prodigal son analogy. You know, He's not going to contend with you forever. And uh and that's kind of what judicial hardening is. It's blinding somebody in their already rebellious state. It's it's um, what Michael Brown describes from the original root word in Hebrew for the word hardening is to strengthen one in their resolve. So if somebody's already resolved to resist God, they're already resolved in their heart to, to uh, not listen to God and not obey him, and God simply strengthens them in that resolve so as to accomplish a good purpose through their rebellion, then that is what judicial hardening is all about. Judicial means it's an act of a judge, and God is, of course, the the great judge, and and therefore He has the right as judge to harden or cut somebody off in their rebellion, to cut somebody off in their unbelief. And in the same way that Pharaoh was hardened so as to bring about the first Passover, Israel in the New Testament times as a nation, corporately speaking, is being hardened so as to bring about the second Passover. And they're being hardened so as to engraft the Gentiles. And once you understand that concept, Calvinism really doesn't have a place to stand anymore because you don't have people born hardened, as in mm-hmm. the tea of tulip, where people are ultimately born with eyes that are dead, corpse-like dead, and ears that are already closed because of the nature they're born in. 
Um, and that's not a biblical concept as far as I can tell. A person can close their eyes to the Spirit of God. They can they can grow hardened. Their, their consciences can become seared if they continue to resist the truth over and over and over again. And the Bible seems to indicate he holds out his hands to them all day long, that he's patient, that he's long-suffering with the lost. But if they continue to resist him and they continue to push away the truth, he doesn't contend with them forever. And so he can you can go to a, grow to a point of becoming so hardened that God can then cut you off and possibly even use you in your rebellion to bring about a good purpose through your rebellious actions, which is exactly what he did through with Pharaoh and exactly what he does with the Jews. And once you understand that, then Romans 9 through 11 makes much more sense from a non-Calvinistic vantage point. Uh, you don't have the concept of the T of total inability that everyone's born already blind and hardened to the truth of God, and they really don't have any say in it. No, you, you put the blame back on them. They're the ones who resisted the Holy Spirit. They're the ones who became hardened because of their own free rebellion. They could have done otherwise. The fact that God uh, strengthens them in that already rebellious resolve to bring about a good purpose through them, you can't blame God for that. Uh, God's not to be uh, blamed. He's the sovereign one. He can do what he wants to with his vessels. And if a vessel of wrath that he's been patient with all these years, and he shapes it, molds it to be one who cries out, crucify him, give us Barabbas, so as to bring about redemption for the world and the engrafting of the Gentiles, then who are you to question God, O oh man? That's the point of Romans 9 through 11. And once you understand that, you don't have the concept of the tulip systematic being read into everything anymore. And that when I when that dawned on me when I when I understood that for the first time, it made me go, oh my gosh, maybe I've gotten this wrong. Maybe reprobation isn't true. Maybe God doesn't reprobate people before they're ever born. Maybe this concept and idea of God choosing some people for salvation and some people for damnation before they're born isn't what Paul was getting at in Romans 9, after all. And and then you begin to to examine the differing uh, perspectives that are out there. And I think once you do objectively, I think you'll see that Paul was not teaching Calvinism at all. Amen, Leighton. Uh, and, and I know you know from Romans 1, uh, they're without excuse. Uh, they know within them that they're deserving of death, it says in Romans 1. So there's obviously a conscious choice to reject God. And and we mentioned their eyes being closed and so forth. Uh, they're in Acts 28. You know, Luke tells us where Paul you know, they close their own eyes. And we see, I believe that's the Holy Spirit's commentary that there's two things going on there. And I'm sure you're aware of the Messianic secret, not the liberal version of the Messianic yep. secret, but how God used that in the Gospels. And 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 they weren't hardened in a determined sense from God from all eternity to be damned, right? They were, after yep. Christ was crucified and God used that, uh, many of the priests believed. And then, you know, in Romans 11, those who are hardened in Romans 9, they can... Re, they can repent and be grafted back in again. So you're right. It collapses the entire Calvinistic system. Uh, and that's just beautiful to hear. It reminds me of, and we're not, we don't call ourselves Arminians, but I appreciate that Jacob Arminius, when he was called by the Calvin, because he's the Calvinistic leader in the Netherlands during the time of Calvin and thereafter to preach against the, the Anabaptists who were growing, who had a salvation view was more similar to ours. He jumped in the scriptures and he was a man that carried his New Testament everywhere. He's known him as a man of the word. And he, it was Romans 7, of all places, in the Calvinistic. He said, this doesn't fit with Scripture. And then later, of course, Romans 9. And we have a, a number of people in our fellowship, a few of them, uh, going to Master's College because we're right here. And we would we would say, don't dare do it. But they're so strong and they're so teriology that we're like, let them loose, you know. And one of the yeah. uh, brothers who started coming not too long ago, maybe a couple years ago, really awesome brother, he's like, he, I was he was brought to my office and somebody said, hey, because he was using Romans 9. And we sat down 
with him, I sat down with him in Romans 9. We went through it for about a half hour, 45 minutes. And he was convinced. I said, to me, that's one of my favorite passages against Calvinism, when you understand yeah. what it's really saying. And that became, now that's his part of his battle cry, that, hey, we have responsibility. Everything's not predetermined. And I'm using that as a segue into your book on Romans 9 and a couple of the major mm-hmm. features maybe in that book uh, that you can bring up that, that actually militate against the Calvinistic understanding of Romans chapter 9. Yeah, um, my book, The Potter's Promise, I've actually written two books. Um, more of the polemic uh, against Roman against uh, Calvinism is uh, the, the Potter's Promise, uh, because I tell about my journey into Calvinism and back out of Calvinism. I, I hope to be very ironic with my Calvinistic friends. Uh, I still have very close friends who are Calvinistic and family members even. And, and so I don't hate the Calvinist. Uh, I don't like Calvinism, obviously. I've rejected Calvinism because I don't think it properly reflects uh, biblical doctrine, and I, I think it, I think it demeans the character of God and His well-intended efforts to provide the, the means of salvation to every man, woman, boy, and girl. And there, therefore, I stand very strongly against Calvinism while still showing love, I hope, and respect towards my Calvinist friends. And the book, The Potter's Promise, does do that. You can find that on Amazon. They're there at the website at Sociology 101. But uh, another book I wrote is really more of a positive presentation. It's called. Uh, God's provision for all, and um, it, and it is just a a more of a positive presentation of pro, what I'm calling provisionism that God provides. Yes, we're we're dead in sin, but God provides for dead sinners. Yes, we're rebellious and we're enslaved to sin, but God provides for those who are enslaved to sin. So all the things that the Calvinists like to to talk about, I agree with them with regard to the condition of man as being a sinner enslaved and enmity with God, but. That's what the gospel is for. The gospel is for those who are enemies of God. It's it's calling us to reconciliation. It's an appeal of God to be reconciled. And so, yes, yes, we're dead enemies of God, but God sends a sufficient message for dead enemies to respond to him. And if you respond by suppressing the truth, that's your fault. It's not because God didn't really want you or God didn't provide the sufficient amount of grace that you need to be saved. It's because you chose to rebel. It's only because of you. In other words, you're to be fully blamed if you refuse the gospel. Uh, you can't resort to what I've heard some people resort to. Well, maybe it's all real, but I'm not chosen. Maybe this is, um, maybe I've just been destined for hell. Um, I, I, nobody should be able to say that because the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, and therefore, I think we have to be really clear in our sociology to say, when the Bible says God loves you and the Bible says that God's provided for you and the Bible says that God desires for your salvation, then there, there should be no doctrinal systematic that comes in and undermines that truth. Amen. And that's why I'm I'm doing this. No, I think that's that's awesome that you are. And one of the things, too, and I know Joe had, had kind of mentioned this in the very beginning, but it, it brought back my memory when he was talking about uh, our brother in Christ who came out of Calvinism. And one of the th- reasons he was so he was so embedded in it was because at his own church he wasn't hearing much at the time in terms of any real theology and doctrine on the subject. So when he had questions about, hey, you know, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this? He was getting the uh, John Piper answers. And so eventually he just became a, you know, a Calvinist because that's who was giving him answers theologically. So he was trusting him on abortion. Why wouldn't he trust him on sociology? And so actually when he found out that his best friend at the time who was in our fellowship was non-Calvinist, he thought, oh no, it's even a Christian. Like, it, it really came to that point. And I wanted to ask you as well, have you noticed that 
typically, you know, when you go and look up questions online, you know, whether it's League and Air or whether it's, you know, Got Questions or whatever it is, that typically the people on there that we're getting our answers from online, a lot of times for whatever subject it is, are typically Calvinists. Yeah, that that is one of the motivations for starting the podcast and and the the website Sociology One Hundred and One is because that's what I was noticing as a trend, and and I think it was just a lot of people ask me why that is. Well, there's a couple of reasons. I think that the surging of Calvinism and the popularity of John Piper and all those kinds of things happened about the same time that the internet was coming out in the mid '90s, um, early 2000s, and so when when Calvinists converge together because they feel like they're being attacked because. Uh, many people obviously were very much against Calvinism, especially back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, and therefore, they can kind of converge and join together, kind of hunkered in, if you will, in the kind of a bunker mentality. You you end up overlooking all the other uh, theological differences between those who hold to a, a Calvinistic soteriology. And so they, they, they form these groups called Together for the Gospel. And within the Southern Baptist world, it was called the Founders Ministry because they're trying to restore what they believed were the founding doctrines of the Southern Baptist Convention, which did tend to be more Calvinistic in those days. Um, and so they, they want to restore these, these truths that they think have been lost in the majority of the Christian world. And so a lot of them were converging, and so they were cranking out materials, and then the internet hits. And so what are they going to do? They're going to put all those materials out online. Uh, and so I think that's one of the reasons you see so much material on uh, Calvinism being promoted through the internet. But not only that, Calvinists tend to be more um, more of the intellectualistic type of writers and authors. Um, the, the mindset tends to be geared towards more of those kinds of people. I know I used to be one, and, I, and I'm, I'm the same way. I write books, and I produce broadcasts. So I, I'm, I share the personality that many Calvinists hold. And that is that they are very doctrinally minded systematizers. They like to think through things and write and broadcast. They like to talk. They, they like to, to, to produce materials. Whereas those who tend towards um, more of a free will theology or an Arminian kind of theology like Wesley, for example, tend to be more practitioners. Just look at Wesley's life. Very much a practitioner. He was the one who's creating um, organizations and groups and organizing things and building buildings and getting things done. Um, whereas, you know, his brother and others were, you know, writing stuff more. And so there, there's, there's just a different personality type that's drawn more to a more systematized way of thinking. And they tend to be people who are writing the books. Now, it doesn't take very long and it's not very hard that if you begin to study and look that actually a majority of Christian scholars, uh, as well as pastors and practitioners, uh, overall, a majority have been non-Calvinistic. I mean, it's it's typically agreed upon, even among Calvinists, that those who hold to a, a strong four to five point Calvinistic dogma only really uh, makes up about 20 to 30 percent of the population of the church over the course of, of church history at, at the very most. Um, and in early church writings, as is already mentioned, uh, it is completely absent until you see Augustine really introduced uh, this way of thinking more in the closer to the fifth century. And so uh, it, it's one of those things that's obviously been debated and it's it's a hot button topic, especially among Western theologians. But um, but it doesn't take much study to learn very quickly that a majority of scholars and pastors have actually held to a non-Calvinistic soteriology over the years. Amen. And that's, and that's you know, huge by way of comparison uh, as far as scholarship goes. Uh, and, and of course, we don't decide things based on 
what scholarship says one way or another, but it is nice to know that not, not only the, you know, the amount of scholarship is out there is, you know, non-Calvinistic, but even the the roots of uh, the Christian church, you know, the first centuries right. and, of church history. Well, I would just say that doesn't prove that Calvinism is wrong. Just just because the first you know yeah. few centuries didn't teach Calvinism doesn't prove it's not wrong. Just like just because the majority don't believe Calvinism doesn't doesn't mean it's wrong either. Uh, and so a lot of people make that mistake. That's a that's a fa fallacy to say it must be wrong because it's not as popular. The reason I pointed out is that because sometimes Calvinists appeal to orthodoxy and they appeal to popularity themselves that's in right. order to justify um, their doctrines. And I'm just saying. Well, if you want to go there, we can we can look at history. We can look at popularity, and I, I think we would actually win on that front if you really do a, a analysis of of the facts. And so, um, if if they're going to appeal to popularity or orthodoxy, then it's it's within our rights to appeal to the same thing to demonstrate that actually history shows that uh, the more popular position has been on a non-Calvinistic vantage point, as well as uh, the roots of Christian doctrine, Christian teaching, do not side with Calvinism at all. Absolutely, and I think it's a very strong argument, though, because when you find out that Calvinism has its roots in Gnosticism, that the church, as far as the determinism uh, and Stoicism in the, in the first few centuries, and the early Christians were combating that and teaching that Jesus died for all and will that all would be saved, uh, it's a really powerful argument. And when you have a Johnny-come-lately belief system that you don't see earlier in church history, it's, it becomes suspect immediately. And especially when you have this whole semi-Pelagian, you know, boogeyman and so forth that's bantered around among Calvinists. And a lot of them, because they don't see the forest for the trees, don't realize that that's a false charge. But you really can see that Augustine was, you know, a Gnostic and a Manichaean, and, and they were very deterministic. You know, I was going to mention, because you had said, Leighton, uh, that, you know, I think a lot of the motivation, too, for the Calvinists is, frankly, a lot of them believe that, you know, Christians— that don't hold Calvinism, oftentimes they must not be saved or or they're sub-Christian. So you see, well, you see many evangelical Christians that aren't Calvinists, and we do a lot of street witnessing, out on the streets witnessing. You don't see many Calvinists by way of comparison often uh, witnessing, but you do see uh, them going to other churches and seeking to steal sheep at times. Uh, no doubt about that. That's been a huge problem. Chuck Smith, uh, who founded Calvary Chapel, mentioned that being a problem with in his own churches and Calvaries and so forth. Uh what I think is 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 telling is that uh, even a brother, young brother, I think he's 20 years old, uh, just started John MacArthur's church. He came to me for counsel because uh, some people were saying, don't dare go to not MacArthur's church, but Master's College uh, and to get a Bible degree. And he said, I mean, told by some not to even go there. I'm saying, no, I know who he is and I fear for the school in a good way uh, because he is he's a young scholarly type of guy and he's been there now just for a little bit and He's dug his feet in the ground. He said, Joe, I've become so much more convinced that Calvinism is wrong the more I hear these professors. But just to let you know, I think a lot of them are trying to convert people to Calvin. It's almost like you have to receive not just Jesus, but you have to receive John Calvin into your heart to make sure you're really saved, you know? Because he was asked in one of these classes, uh, he's going through, a, a, in one of the classes, soteriology became a big issue, and the professor asked them, how many of you believe that Arminianism and that and, and that those that aren't Calvinists are not. How, how do you believe that that's not Christian Arminianism? And he said almost every hand went up because you have a lot of the students are coming from Calvinistic parents that are sending them. And then he was asked. Then he asked the class, "How many of you believe that these those that aren't Calvinists are not even Christians?" And he said again, most of the hands went up. And then he said, the professor said to him, 
well, said to the class, well, you know what? I don't know where to draw a line, but if somebody knows what Calvinism teaches and they reject it, then, I, then I'm really concerned about them. So this mm-hmm. is what they're getting at. I'm like, wow. And he said, you yeah. know, he's having a great time uh, showing uh, other students, you know, uh, and he, he's a very wonderful brother. Uh, the well, truth. I, I know that MacArthur doesn't consider that, you know, Armenians are necessarily lost. I know um, Phil Johnson, who's a part of Masters, doesn't necessarily consider that. I, I, I was in a, a class actually with um, with Phil Johnson, uh, who is part of Grace to You Ministries, and he actually said that's he said that's one of the biggest quandaries in his mind, at least, is why are there so many Christians who are not Calvinists, who don't become Calvinists? He said that's that's the biggest question for me because well, it's an easy if, answer, Leighton. God, God ordains, determined yeah, it that God way. God ordains all things. <laughs> yeah, if God ordains all things, then He's obviously ordained for many of His children not to adopt Calvinistic sociology, and that 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 seems to be uh, irrational. It it it, and it does that's seem right. to create us kind of a subclass of of the elect. Because you got the elect who believe in election like Calvinism teaches it, and then you got an, a group of elect who don't believe in Calvinism like uh, like they teach it, and and that becomes a, a strange uh, theology indeed. Because you've ultimately got God ordaining for a good number of His own children not to believe correct theology for some reason. So you you have to it seems to me adopt some idea of freedom of the will um, in order to even make these kinds of differences of opinion among Christians to be rational uh, and, and to, to to make much sense. Otherwise, you've got God ordaining, i.e. decreeing some people to believe false theology, and that doesn't make any rational sense as far as I can tell. Now, maybe it's just a shortcoming on my own mental capacities, but I, I can't make any sense of that kind of belief. Yeah, it's really interesting, Leighton, because it, one of the things I think people don't even— uh, necessarily know. A lot of times they just think of your ministry as merely being one of soteriology, but you're the director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Southern Baptist, and I think that's really interesting because I've noticed while sharing the gospel that soteriology, the doctrine of how we are saved, actually comes up quite often when I'm on the streets sharing the gospel yeah. with someone. So I'd love for you to maybe explain how that also kind of hand in glove when it comes to soteriology, evangelism, and apologetics. Yeah, the reason I created a separate page for soteriology is because it's such a hot button topic that it has a tendency to overwhelm every other topic. Uh, as many of you know, it's 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 such a especially right now in our our history, it's such a uh, hot button topic that everyone wants to talk about it, and so. If I were just to kind of add it into our apologetics page with our evangelism, what we do with Texas Baptist, um, I've seen what that's done. It overwhelms that page and, and, it, and it becomes some, some, somewhat of a distraction to what else is happening in evangelism. And, and it's, an in, it's an intramural debate. It's a, it's a debate among Christians. And so I don't want it to overwhelm and to take away from our effort in evangelism and, and, and training in evangelism and the, you know, our, our center for church health where I work, I didn't want that to be overwhelmed by that. That's why I created this sociology 101 on the side. I do this in my spare time. It's not a part of my full-time work. Even this is something I do uh, on the side. And so whenever I, 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 people get to know me through the podcast and they think, well, this is all Leighton does because they only know me because of the podcast. I have to remind them that this is just a small portion of my life. And, and, and I, I've separated this so that it doesn't overwhelm 
things that are more important and and that we've got to keep our eyes and focus upon winning the lost. We've got to keep our eyes and focused upon uh, the church and the growth of the church and the health of the church and uh, the disciplines that God's called us to. I had a quiet time this morning. I share my faith with others. You don't just because you don't see that on on my podcast doesn't mean that I don't think that those things are valuable and important. And uh, and so I, I've, I've tried to more and more in my podcast talk about uh, when I share my faith with someone or the evangelism conferences that we're doing or the work we're doing with uh, assessing churches and church health and these kinds of things, because I want people to see that there is a balance in, uh, in these things. And you can't just spend all day long all the time just talking about sociology. That's not healthy. Um, and and, I, and I, I've tried to encourage our listeners to, to remember how important it is to step away from the debates and discussions and, and spend time with the Lord, be quiet with God sometimes, and spend time with brothers and sisters, not talking about or debating necessarily theological differences that you have with them, but just enjoying each other's company, winning winning uh, people to the Lord, serving those who are in need. Um, when, whenever you do that together with someone, it's a lot easier to have those kinds of conversations with them without becoming vitriolic and mean, because you begin to see them as a real person who has real needs and and that you're able to actually minister with. And that makes a real huge difference in the attitude that we take. Amen, Leighton. And I personally view uh, your ministry, even when you're dealing with Calvinism, because it is, I view, uh, a, such a blight on the body of Christ because it distorts who God is, his character. I believe it is in many to- many ways, you know, can become anti-missionary if you feel everything's predetermined. Uh, it's It can affect the health of the church. So, uh, because if people have a wrong view of God and, you know, wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. And and I just think it's imperative that I look at your ministry, even if you're not bringing those things up, you are dealing with church health. I believe you're a bomb of healing uh, because you're dealing with the understanding of who God is constantly and the way of salvation, and it promotes evangelism. So I see, I personally see that you're already doing that even when you're talking about Calvinism because you're trying to protect the church and trying to bring healing to people who have been hurt and were caught up you know the situation you were in, so you realize, wow, people need to be set free. So I think it's a beautiful thing uh, that you're doing, but it is interesting going back and then with a follow-up question to uh, this brother, young brother that just started this semester, a brand new student there, uh, to get in. I mean, he met with the dean of Bible, you know, Master's Bible College under MacArthur, and uh, it was just a frank discussion, and he went through their different doctrines, the dean, and he said, I deny, I I deny all five points of Calvinism, he admitted. And he said, you know, even their view of depravity is different than ours because we don't believe uh, that uh, you have to be born again before you can understand the gospel. And then what's interesting, he said, well, we even differ because I believe Jesus died for everyone. The dean of Master's Bible College said, well, I believe that too. He said, in fact, all the professors here believe that Jesus died for everyone. We won't hire someone, which I thought you might find interesting. We won't hire someone unless they believe that Jesus died for everyone. And we do differ from John MacArthur, but since he's been around the seminary professors, he's changed his view on that, but we still hold the other view. I thought that was fascinating. It's like, why is God yeah. predetermining one part of the Bible college to believe one way? And well, obviously we know their choice is involved. So I thought that's fascinating, but yeah. I thought that would lend to a question. Uh, how is it when you start denying that even one point of Calvinism doesn't that bring all the other dominoes down, the other four points? I, I can see how it would. I mean, there are a lot of people who first, uh, you know, reticent themselves from the L of limited atonement. In other words, they, they step out of five-point Calvinism into four-point Calvinism first. Uh, 
and then and then eventually a lot of times they'll begin to question the other points because they were at least willing to question one. Um, some stay with the more Almeraldian is what it's called the four point Calvinistic approach, which is really a debate over the extent versus um, the application of the atonement. All of us obviously believe that only those who believe in Jesus are going to be atoned uh, in the sense that we are going to be saved. You're not not everyone is saved, obviously, and so we're not universalist um, in that sense. And so the atonement is applied through faith. Uh, faith is the means by which uh, one receives the benefit of the atonement. So Christ dies for the sins of the world, but it's only those who look to him for healing, trust in the, the provision of that atonement, who are actually saved. And so there, that's where the debate gets over the extent versus the application of the atonement. And I think I think those in the Reformed tradition who understand the difference between the extent and the application and the intent of the atonement, as I think David Allen has, uh, in his work, has very well laid out for us um, in, in going through the historical uh, documents of the Lombardian formula, for example, and much of the early Reformed history, including John Calvin himself, arguably, mm -hmm. uh, who, who did believe in a universal extent of the atonement. And probably the reason you'll see places like Master Seminary and other places adopting more of an Armoraldian approach, because it's very hard to deny First uh, John two two, for example, and so many other texts that really express the extent of the atonement being for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Uh, and and so I, I'm happy that more and more people are leaving behind the L of limited atonement. But at the same time, I think it can be still consistently held the other four points to some degree, um, because if you if you acknowledge the difference between the extent and the application, even a Calvinist can still maintain the T of total depravity, meaning the inability of one to believe in the gospel unless they were unconditionally elected the U and irresistibly graced, uh, regenerated or brought to new life before they believe. You can consistently hold to those perspectives without necessarily adopting the L. And, um, and that's one of the reasons I don't spend a lot of time on the L because it's somewhat superfluous given the other three points. And, and that's one of the reasons I've really focused most of my attention on the T because most people don't recognize that just because you can affirm depravity that we're sinners doesn't necessarily mean you have to affirm this concept that are we're born in essence already hardened and blinded and therefore have no control over that. In other words, we it, we're almost in a sense victims. We're born in this this completely incapacitated state to even respond to God's own appeals to be reconciled. And I don't think that's ever established in the Bible as far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we emphasize, of course, because, you know, and I know you do as well, Jesus' death for all, uh, because that's the good news, you know. But for us, yeah. it follows that, you know, why would, if God, if Jesus died for all, which we believe the scriptures are very clear he did, why would he do so if he's only unconditionally, unconditionally elected son to be saved? Why would he pour out his blood for others that he wanted to be damned yeah. from all eternity? Uh, and it also, it shows the heart of God, the, the death for everybody. It's, it's by the propitiation, which told in First John in the Gospel of John too, that we see His love, which makes the you unconditional election incongruent, you know, with God. So, showing His love and manifesting His love through uh, a universal atonement and providing salvation for everyone, we believe that does undermine uh, the other points quite quite strongly. And I, but I, one more question along these lines, I guess, is sure. uh, when it comes to you know dealing with total depravity. And we do believe, as you do, and that's, uh, <laughs> you kind of get this uh, misrepresented constantly, I should say, those who aren't Calvinists, as though we believe 
that we have this natural free will where we begin seeking God and we don't need to be drawn by the Father and so forth. Right. Uh, but we do believe that we are, by God's grace, of course, the grace of God that brings salvation appears to all men, and it's the power of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen, that sets us free. Right. Uh, can you speak to the power of the gospel in setting people free, all non-believers having that possibility? Well, Hebrews does it really well. Hebrews 4 talks about mm -hmm. the sword mm -hmm. as sharper, double-edged sword. And what is a sword? A, a sword is an external weapon that has an internal impact. Well, the Word of God is compared to a sword. Why? Because it is an external. The preaching of God's Word is external, but it pierces through our ears and our eyes, and it has an internal impact. Uh, you know, you've always heard it said back when you were a kid, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We all know that's untrue. Why? Because words sometimes have much uh, deeper pain in our lives than, than sticks and stones could ever have. Why? Because words have power. Truth sets you free. If you suppress truth, you will remain in bondage. But truth itself sets you free. It's the word of God. It's inspired of God. And so words have power. And if you suppress the truth that words bring, that is your fault. It's not It's not a condition you were born decreed that you could only suppress truth just because of your, your natural inborn state. I, I don't believe that we should give people that excuse. I think if they suppress truth, it's because they have chosen to do so. They're choosing to close their eyes. And so we're, we're talking about the importance of the sword of the spirit, the word of God, which is able to bring light and, and, and knowledge and truth to bear. And then you're responsible for what you do with the light, the knowledge that God brings through divine revelation. If you suppress it, that's your fault. It's, it's not, you can't blame that. Well, that's just the way I was born. Um, well, God must not have loved me. Well, God must not have opened my eyes to it. Well, it takes a miracle to have faith. And then God didn't give me that miracle. Th those are all things that are, that are not found in the Bible. That That's just made up based upon a systematic reading of Calvinism onto the scriptures. And that's what I'm trying to push back against, just to say we need to, to not overemphasize God's sovereignty to the point where we neglect the fact that he, in his sovereignty, gave us responsibility, meaning the ability to respond to him. And so even though we're dead, even though we are uh, enemies, even though we are enslaved, God has sent a life-giving truth that is calling us to reconciliation, calling us to freedom from our slavery. And it is sufficient, it is gracious, and it is good. And therefore, we, sh we should not be able to say, therefore, um, that because somebody ends up in hell, it's because they, they were rejected by their maker, or God didn't really send Jesus to die for them, or, or God didn't send a message that was sufficient for them to believe it. Uh, all of those things um, are, are made up and added onto the text. They're not found in the scripture at all. Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to, I mean, we've when it comes to Calvinism specifically, we've talked about on our shows Calvin's horrible decree and certain things. But in terms of the the practical nature of counseling someone as well, one of the biggest problems I've had is the assurance of salvation issue and specific to evanescent grace in the way that John Calvin taught it in his institutes. And I, I wanted to ask you as well, in terms of when it comes to this evanescent grace, that which would prove to be evanescent, where someone could have this salvation and just appear that way only so God could damn them all the more. Have you noticed that when it comes to Calvinists, because I've seen their writings where they struggle with salvation, I think it was, I think it was Bunyan who said, I wish I was a tile and a roof. Yeah. Um, you know, have you noticed that assurance of salvation 
can be quite difficult for those who say they're the elect based off, you know, the internal witness of being called, being able to cry out, Abba, Father. Yeah, I, I think that in order to have assurance, it's it's based upon belief in the character and the goodness of the one you're trusting for your salvation. Uh, in other words, it's not just that you you believe in God, but that you believe in God who is good and just and right and will do what he says he's going to do. In other words, he's not duplicitous. He's not going to trick me. Um, he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so I don't have to wonder about his character or whether or not he's telling me the truth. And and I know Calvinists, I know Calvinists push back against this. I understand um, that this 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 seems to fly in the face of, of what you say you believe. But the truth of the matter is, if you believe God is the kind of God who could trick people into believing they're saved when they're really not, and what I mean by that is decree them with this effervescent grace, I never can pronounce that correctly. Um, this 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 false view that I'm a Christian when I'm really not. And if God's the kind of God that would do that to somebody, then how do you know you're not one of those people who falsely believe you're truly a child of God, but who who knows whether he's ordained you to abandon the faith sometime later in your life? You you can't know if you've really been elect until you actually get to heaven and find out. Um, and so that, that can create doubt within people, especially if they're struggling with secret sin. This was my issue as a young Calvinist, as I was dealing with some um, some addiction issues. And therefore I began to go, well, if God's really ordained me to be a Christian, then why would he ordain and decree for me to have this lust issue and this addiction that I was developing in my young, my younger male years, which I later learned almost every guy was dealing with at some level or another. And I thought I was all alone dealing with this. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe I'm not elect. You know, that that's the first thing that goes through your mind. Maybe I'm just fooling myself here because would an elect person do this stuff? you know, and, and not be able to quit and have these addictions and these, these problems. And so my immediate issue is maybe I'm not elect. And so when I go to my counselor who happened to be a Calvinist friend of mine, and I tell him, confess my sin and say, here's what I'm dealing with. Why am I dealing with this? Why doesn't God take that away from me? You decree for me to stop sinning, you know, these kinds of things. And his, his advice to me was what sometimes God gives us a thorn in the flesh to keep us humble. Well, I look back on that now and, and it was such a, a devastating point of counsel to me because ultimately what he did, he did, he gave me a perfect excuse for my sin. Mm-hmm. Well, God ordained for your sin. God gave you that thorn in the flesh. So this, this addiction that you have, Leighton, is actually purposed by God to keep you humble. So it's actually a good thing, even though it's a bad thing. It's something that God wants to, you to have in order to keep you humble. Well, what is every addict looking for? an excuse for their addiction. Mm-hmm. And, and and the 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 first point for healing in any addiction, you go to any addiction program, even in the secular world, is what? You have to own your sin. You have to own your addiction. It's your fault. It's not somebody else's. You can't say, hey, uh, the woman you gave made me do it. You know, the that that over there is the reason. That over there, the, you know, you got to say Leighton is at fault. Leighton did that and he could have and he should have done otherwise. It is all on Leighton. And once you adopt that you're the sinner, and I could have done otherwise, and I should have done otherwise, then and only then can you begin to find healing because you now are, are blaming the right person instead of blaming a decree of God or something else out there that's that somehow made you a victim that you can't really help it. And and you see people do this all the time. Well, I was born that way. You know, this is the way God made me, these kinds of things. Um, that That is a cop-out 
And sometimes it's a subconscious cop-out for people. And this is where the danger of that, that deterministic way of thinking can, can really take root and actually practically harm the church and individuals who hold to this kind of way of thinking, this kind of philosophy. Instead of recognizing when I sin, it's totally on me. I am 100% responsible for my sins. I'm 100% responsible uh, in trusting in him too. And, and God's 100% responsible for salvation. And we give him all the glory for salvation because he doesn't have to save those who trust in him. He chooses to. And it's our responsibility to own up uh, to our sins, to confess that sin, and to trust in him. And that's why it's so valuable to understand God is, is who he says he is. He's not duplicitous. He doesn't have two wills, one that's external and one that's hidden, uh, to where we have to wonder whether what he's saying to us is really true or not. Or maybe he's just prescriptively saying, Leighton, I love you, but really sovereignly decree he's actually chosen me for damnation i if i believe that god is the kind of god that might do that to somebody then i can't know if i'm one of the people that he's truly chosen for salvation or not and that's what's i think devastating about the calvinistic perspective right leighton uh, that's a lot of really good things you just stated there uh and for our audience because evanescent grace came up just so you understand understand that this isn't something we're saddling calvinists with this this is something that calvin and calvin himself taught in hebrews chapter 6 in his commentary that those who have received the Holy Spirit, it says, and and so forth, and tasted the powers of the ages to come, and the, the good word of God, and so forth, and then fall away, parapasantus, past tense, they've fallen away. Calvin has to deal with that. Wow, they received the Holy Spirit, but now they're falling away. So he's to, to basically uh, hold up the doctrine of the inevitable perseverance of the saints, he says, well, these guys weren't actually Christians. What happened here is God gives them such a measure of grace as to make them think that they're saved, and then later withdraws it, he calls it evanescent grace. Uh, that is basically teaching that God deludes people purposely to think they're saved. And he says he does that so he right. can damn them all the more. And that to me is, it, it not just causes a lack of assurance because every single Calvinist who has to already wonder whether Jesus died for them or not, and then even if they're walking and not struggling with an addiction, which you were doing and so many people do in their early walks that they need to repent of, but even if they are walking and they seem to show great strength and they, they still have to wonder if that's going to be withdrawn from them and even when you since you mentioned biblical counseling uh jay adams uh who wrote some really great stuff he's a top probably calvinistic historically uh writer on counseling and he's done, written some really good things too but uh in his book competent to counsel uh he states in that book the counselor shall never tell the counselee that jesus died for them because no one knows who jesus died for and I thought, poor Jay Adams, he can't even then know if Jesus died for him. And that's not the kind of assurance we see in Scripture where Paul talks about those whose names he's addressing, who are their names are written in, in, in the book of life, and where John says, you know, uh, you know, talks about knowing that we have eternal life. God calls us to this great set of, uh, set of assurance based on objective reality that Jesus indeed died for all of our sins. And then, of course, praise God, there is the internal witness whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and so forth. And then the Bible also warns that there's battles because 1 John 3 says that if if, that, if if our hearts condemn us, he's greater than our hearts. But you can't be greater than our heart. You can't work through, the, through those things so easily. And Satan can get a foothold. Uh, look what right. he did to Job. He made Job get to the point where Job felt he wasn't even forgiven. He, he, why will you not forgive my sins? But God had already declared him blameless. So part of Satan's warfare is to blind the believer to his own forgiveness uh, to just destroy him from within. And and I don't believe any Calvinists are intentionally doing that. I just believe it's a deception that they've fallen into. And that's another reason I praise God for your ministry. 
If I could ask you, uh, Leighton, what would be some of the things, give me two or three things that you feel are most destructive about Calvinism as far as how they affect people and then the scriptural answers as to how to overcome those struggles? Yeah, I think the one we just mentioned is a big one, just the, the deterministic way of thinking that's embedded within the Calvinistic worldview that God ultimately ordains whatsoever comes to pass, uh, including your besetting sin, according to Piper and, uh, and other you know, consistent Calvinists. And that, that itself can be a devastating thing for those who are dealing with sins themselves. And so that's, that's probably one of the biggest practical uh, destructive things that you find in Scripture. And one of the scriptures that would answer that, of course, is 1 Corinthians 10.13, which teaches that no sin, uh, no temptation will overcome you or will, will, uh, n- will that God will not provide a means of a way out. I'm, not, I'm, I'm obviously paraphrasing that. I don't have it memorized, obviously, in front of me. But th- that, that passage gives us hope to say, even when you're tempted, and James says, when you're tempted, no one should say that God's the one who tempts you. So it's not God tempting you. The temptation's coming from your own flesh and the world, not from God. Uh, pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world, as we see in First John two sixteen. And so we know that when we're tempted, it's not from God, and it's not, uh, and, it, and it's not something He quote unquote sovereignly and unchangeably ordained. Not only the temptation, but your choice to actually fall into temptation if you do so. Um, but instead, that is something that He has actually provided a way of escape for. And that he has provided a way out for. And I, I don't see how that teaching is consistent within the Calvinistic determinism of Calvinism and the concept of God ordaining whatsoever comes to pass or decreeing, uh, i.e. causally determining whatsoever comes to pass, which is what consistent Calvinists teach. Now, as you said, not every Calvinist is the same. It's not a monolithic group. And there are some Calvinists who try to hold a quasi form of libertarian free will and Calvinism and, and ultimately saying that um, all of these other choices are libertarianly free, but only the choice to receive Christ, that one's determined by God or not. Um, and, and so some Calvinists try to, to have both. And I, I will just point them to good Reformed doctrines uh, to rebuke them because they other Reformed teachings will demonstrate to them how their, their logic doesn't uphold to not only the Scriptures, but just logic itself. It just doesn't work. It falls apart. Um, and there's no reason to adopt that kind of worldview once you understand the scriptures, I think, from the, uh, you know, from our vantage point. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think those are the probably the biggest practical issues with regard to why Calvinism can be dangerous. It's not always the case that it, that it even gets to that level of people thinking through it that, to that level or allowing it to affect them in a more fatalistic way like that. But it certainly can, and it has. I've heard a lot of testimonies of people who've struggled with the same kinds of things that I struggle with as a young Calvinist, as well as many uh, who are in Calvinism now who have contacted me at one point or another saying, you know, I heard your testimony about this, and I've actually have struggled with that exact thought or those exact things. Uh, We we see things like from Derek Webb, who was a very well-known Calvinistic uh, writer uh, and, and musician, who now is an atheist and actually cites Calvinistic, uniquely Calvinistic beliefs as some of his reasons for leaving Christianity altogether. And yeah, in one of his songs, he his talks unbelief. about, did God determine me to be a Cain? You know, he questions his salvation even yep. in one of his songs before he uh, he departed from uh, Christianity. Uh, it's, it's amazing because it, it does become an attack on God's character because in James 1, when he sa- it says God doesn't, att- doesn't tempt anyone, 
the point there is that God is good because a few verses before that, he says, you know, that he's every good and perfect gift comes down from him. There's no shadow of turning him. God is light, First John, there's no darkness in him. But you're, you're saying something worse. God doesn't only tempt someone to sin, not you, but Calvinism. He actually determines that they sin, and then he blames them for all eternity for doing something they couldn't but do, you know? So I think it's important that people understand that there is, uh, by the way, why does Satan blind the minds of them that believe not? Why does he steal the seed when it's planted if it's already determined what's going to happen? Satan obviously knows that Calvinism is a lie. Uh, but I'm going to, uh, cause I know we're running out of time. I'm going to give Chad the last question here. We got just a couple minutes left, Leighton, but we thank you so much sure. for your time, your beautiful brother in Jesus and keep pressing on him and do not be discouraged, man. Cause a lot of people are being set, in, set free through the truth. No, I, amen, Leighton. And one of the things we've just loved as a ministry, uh, seeing other people out there answering these questions. And one of the things I do love, uh, about your ministry is people get so mad. It's so funny. The same people that would come against you and say, Hey, you know what? You're you're always this long-winded person. You give such a long answer. Are the same one that if you were an- not answering their questions, they'll tell you, "Well, you didn't answer my questions." So it kind of puts you in this between a rock and a hard space. But nonetheless, I, I just wanted to, instead of asking you a question, just encourage you from our ministry to yours. We are really blessed by everything that you've been doing. And I don't know if you got anything coming up that you would love to share with somebody, um, even if it was an apologetics conference or something, or a show that you're really excited about. I know you just did an RC Sproul thing. You've done, I mean, you're always doing shows, so it's a blessing. So is there anything specifically that you would point people to, to get them over to your ministry to be encouraged? Well, we are always at Texas Baptist have new events coming up, our unapologetic conferences that Eric Hernandez, who's been on your show, uh, helps to lead those. Uh, and you can check out texasapologetics.org. Uh, they're at texasbaptist.org uh, to find out when those uh, those uh, events are are happening throughout the state. Um, I, I'm privileged to be able to to go to churches. I'm going to a church in uh, Arkansas next weekend, in fact, and uh, we'll be uh, speaking on this subject because that's what they called and asked me to do. And then traveling from there, going to an associational meeting, speaking on evangelism, and so. Uh, I get to speak on an array of topics, and I'm, I'm, I love the fact that I get to do that. And um, and if if someone listening or watching this wants to contact me through our website there uh, on the About Us page at Sociology 101, there's a link there for a request for booking and those kinds of things. If you'd like for me to come and speak uh, when I'm available, I'd be glad to to do that. Um, and and I, I I feel blessed that I I have give, been given the opportunity to talk about God's provision and love for all people. Um, and the accusation that some Calvinists uh, bring uh, about me being long-winded is true. I, 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 my wife tells me that quite regularly. I, I have a tendency to be a, a little bit long-winded when it comes to things, but especially when it comes to things that I feel very strongly about. And I do feel very strongly about the, the understanding of God's love and provision for all people. And so Amen. on that, I will continue to be probably just a little long with it. That's for sure. <laughs> no, and thank you so much, Dr. Leighton Flowers, for joining us on the Good Fight Radio Show alongside Pastor Joe Schimmel and myself. I want to thank you guys. It was also long-winded at times, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should have saw the intro it's question. Yeah, it's a preacher. Yeah, it's a preacher. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but praise God. Thank you so much, Dr. Flowers. We and, love you, brother. And, and we, we pray you're blessed you by too, this guys. show. God bless you guys. God bless you, bro. You too, brothers. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. 
That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.